0: One, one, two, three. Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. This episode of Green Left features an important discussion about the tertiary education sector. The tertiary education sector is in crisis with the federal government signalling that it is prepared to allow the wholesale destruction of most of the higher education sector. Worse, the NTU national leadership have caused an uproar um, by indicating that they were prepared to make concessions on pay and working conditions rather than lead a fight. We'll be having an important discussion um, with Jonathan Strauss and Helen Masterman Smith uh, about all these issues and what kind of politics and fight is needed to take back our universities. So, on um, we have Jonathan Strauss, um, the NTU, uh, the NTU James Cook University branch president and member of social science, along with Helen Masterman Smith, um, who is um the NTU Charles Stewart University um branch president and also social science member. So we're going to be having a bit of a discussion with them um, where they're going to go into kind of detail about what is actually the situation that is happening in universities and um what is the kind of fight back that is um being built um developing amongst the, the members and the and within the union. Um, so who would like to kind of start sort of explaining I guess what's current kind of political situation for, for universities at the moment?
1: So uh, I guess the broad situation at the moment is across the, the sector is that um, the government, the federal government and um, a lot of their appointees who run universities and university managers and employers are using the, the COVID-19 pandemic as um, a kind of smashing ball for the higher education sector. So they're using it, in my view, as an opportunity to accelerate and push through a very reactionary and elitist uh, vision that they have for the higher education sector. Um, and unfortunately, uh, the way they've gone about it has managed to, to wedge or divide sections of the National Tertiary Education Union membership. Uh, and for me, I guess the key uh, task in front of us is how we build or, or rebuild, I should say, a unified force to, to check that reactionary push so in a nutshell that's what i think is going on i'm happy to get into the details
2: so jacob yes so you can see the basic situation is that in (laughs) fact public funding for universities has been run down for a long time and they've been put into a position of relying on various sources of private funds um this can be all sorts of things, including company, corporate sponsorships, and all the rest. But one of the key features has been the question of fees from international students, who, as part of their studies, are re- uh, their study regime, their, their visas are required to live and also try to work here, typically to earn an income to actually live on, uh, and then study um, on campus. So they were coming here basically at the start of the semester when travel restrictions were imposed and many were not here. As a result, uh, there's about $5 billion, billion dollars in fees uh, that are not being collected in particular from those, student, from those students mainly. And if that was simply to flow through into straight cuts to the workforce, you're talking about 20 to 22,000 uh, jobs equivalent of full-time jobs. Um, for the most part, probably many of the universities are not eligible for this JobKeeper program either, so that form of subsidy will not come through. There are possibly some exceptions. Um, And, in fact, whereas we see, for example, you know, bailouts to private corporations such as the airlines being on offer but not to the public sector, and, in fact, the government announced, oh, they can keep the money we were already giving them. Well, that was primarily to teach these students who are residents in, in Australia uh, normally, and that number is not particularly falling. So there's really no benefit there, no significant benefit there. And then the other thing they announced was that, oh, you can run a lot more short courses. Now they did two things there. Two things are going there. In the short run, they said, so you have to discount them massively to recruit people into them, which, of course, means actually little money comes from running them. And the second thing is that that's really a very different sort of concept of what a university should be about than that which um, I guess we would argue for that is fundamentally universities about uh a serious education uh, for life, for thinking critically. Whereas, in fact, if you talk about short courses, these are very much around establishing credentials and fairly minimal credentials, so-called micro-credentialing, in fact, for um, professional uh, work. So that's, that's that. Lying behind this, I think, is what Helen talked about. That is quite possibly what we're seeing is a situation where uh, many of the universities will potentially disappear also need to be reduced below being effectively what would be university with the research activities they carry out and in fact contribute to things like medically and socially address an issue like the coronavirus pandemic. And um, that might well lead just the more elite ones in place who have much larger financial reserves. So that is basically the elitist ideological framework in which the current government is certainly operating and which the Labor Party is actually largely pursued as well, although certainly in a somewhat different form, particularly um, not the public funding aspect of it.
0: Yeah, um, I guess one of the things um, following on from that, although you sort of alluded to some of it, what is actually the government actually proposing in terms of its measures? Because I noticed that um, the government... Um, made an announcement recently about the type of support they're going to be giving to higher education. And there's also a bit of a contradiction, I think, economically in that um, the government, you know, uh, the government actually does rely on universities um, providing the service that they do provide in terms of training people, you know, to do jobs, et cetera. So what can you comment, I guess, on what the government has actually implemented in terms of, in response to this crisis?
2: I think the answer is I've sort of given the detail. In that was more or less the detail of what they had proposed. They had proposed very little um, in terms of the impact of them proposing very little, which I think is perhaps the other question, your other aspect of your question. Um, and we actually we we actually are sort of hearing more from researchers and so on about this. But fundamentally, if you don't actually support an economy, uh, an economic uh, activity, sorry, rather um, economic activity when when it's subject to a sort of a, a sharp decline due to what you might say is not really to do with people making decisions about what's good in life to produce and sustain us, um, you actually have a general situation where in fact money doesn't get spent, people aren't engaged in economic activities, The 10% or so of the workforce will just fall out of the workforce and you actually It doesn't just recover at the end of the immediate crisis. Um, decisions have to be made and somehow the funds have to be found again. The other thing is certainly, yes, I mean, sometimes people talk about the question of the export earnings that the sector provides. And that's got one, to my mind, that's got one major problem. That is we, frankly, education is not a commodity. It's not, not, shouldn't be formed as commodity. It should be seen as, a service and something we need to provide, and and people need to get to live full and meaningful lives, in in a in our society, um, and that should be true both for our local and our, our international students. It was actually the case at one point that that happened back in the seventies. That was one of the first things they used to actually introduce fees into the whole system, and. Um, and so, in fact, what we're seeing is actually breaking from the idea that you actually are offering a higher education.
3: Um,
1: yeah, I kind of definitely agree with, with that uh, analysis, and I guess reinforcing it in terms of the support or what the government has done for higher education. The, the package they announced is sort of a week or so ago, I think it was last weekend or the weekend before, um, of, I think it was 18, um, million or billion or something. But, uh, essentially that was recurring funding. So a guarantee of the Commonwealth support block funding, which universities are given annually. So it wasn't really any new money in that. It's quite a bit of smoke and mirrors going on there. And I think, um, you know, we're hearing from the leadership of our union and, um, and certainly analysis from rank and file members of the union that there's very much an in, this is an indication that the government is happy to let higher education or at least large large sections of it go to the wall, just as they allowed manufacturing to go to the wall uh, several decades ago. Um, they're very much committed to the global capitalist framework. Um, and as uh, Jonathan has indicated, it's all about a commodity view, a commodified view of education. And if it can't compete in a global uh, capitalist economy, then, you know, literally too bad. And this is, I think, the, the key issue here is um this sense that it's no longer viewed by education is not viewed as a public good or an essential um, service for society. You know, what kind of country, what kind of society do we want to have in which we return to a situation in which mm-hmm. the working class and even large sections of the middle class no longer potentially have access to high-quality higher education, which is the backbone of a, you know, clever country, so to speak, or a clever society. And I do also want to echo Jonathan's points about the longer term economic implications. The really good report has come out from um, the Australia Institute. Um, called Making the Same Mistake Twice, and it's very much referring to the way in which things that happened in the 1930s with the Great Depression, with the slashing of public sector wages and conditions, it really fed into this rapid downward economic spiral that led to a 10-year-long depression, which was only really brought to a close by World War II, um, 30% unemployment. Uh, and at this stage, I'm not hearing anything from any side of government about the medium to long term economic consequences of slashing wages and conditions, not just in universities, but for the entire workforce. The public sector is really critical because it is the sort of sector that tends to lead the, the charge in terms of wages and conditions setting for the private sector. So it, so it affects everybody. So those flow-on effects um, really need to be teased out and considered very carefully
4: um helen and jonathan i just had a question this issue of of foreign students being used as cash cows has been a a massive issue for years now i i went to uni back in the early 2000s and already this was a big thing then with the student union saying there's foreign students who aren't allowed to have uh, concession cards for public transport so it's it's really unfair on those students. Uh, if, if the university sector in Australia, I mean, it's possible that because of the restrictions, the lack of herd immunity and stuff, there may be travel restrictions to Australia for quite some time, potentially for another year, two years. Is there any discussion of a pivot away from international students towards more domestic students? How would that look like? would there be a return to universal free uh, higher education to as the sort of um, backbone of funding that uh, what would, would there be targeted courses? Cause you're, you're also talking about um, what are these, what are these courses going to be? Like is the university sector shaped around social needs or is it shaped around things we're going to need? Like for example, um renewable energy we've got an aging population um so yeah it it, it seems like that might be necessary to have a massive restructuring if if a, at least a big chunk of those twenty two thousand jobs that are that are kind of built around international students are to be protected
1: yeah Look, um, a lot of those 20,000 jobs. I think it's important to be clear that in some universities, particularly the sort of sandstone, UNSW, University of Sydney, and Melbourne, who are heavily reliant on that international uh, student income, um, it's going to be a lot of the teaching staff who who work with those students. But in other places, such as where um, where I am at Charles University in regional New South Wales, we have very very exposure to that marketplace, and so the job losses we're looking at here more to the earlier point about um, the shrinking, it seems to be a plan to shrink the sector, uh, including cutting um, regional universities. So our Vice-Chancellor has announced um, well before COVID really hit uh, that they're looking, and these were plans from last year, to sell off campuses and the like. So we're looking at losses of jobs, uh, hundreds of groundskeepers, people who work on campuses, um, you know, all those sorts of things. So some of the, the teaching might be less affected, not that we're not completely immune to that. Um, but I think uh, in terms of the future of the sector and, and what that might mean, what we really are talking about, I'm hearing rumours and I want to stress their rumours, I'd love for someone from the government to come out and publicly refute them, um, that they have this longer term vision of stripping back to maybe one or two universities um, per state and territory. So we're looking at a massively reduced sector. And for those who've been following developments in Europe, the UK and the US, we've seen for some decades now the kind of um, destruction of the middle classes, who often a key signifier of that or demarcation of that is the, uh, the fact that they have a higher education. So I think it's a recipe for a further hollowing out of the middle classes and an increase, which has been happening in Australia anyway, Um, of the working classes. And as for the question about what are we going to be teaching, look, academics um, and university workers in general through the NTU have been raising exactly those concerns for many, many years. Um, You will know probably that uh, social and environmental services, not so much environmental, but certainly um, the social side of society's needs, those sorts of courses have absolutely been decimated. Humanities and Social Sciences, for example, have been decimated in recent years, and it was recognised that they needed support in a a new category of Australian Research Council funding. But nonetheless, this micro-credentialing approach to higher education, which threatened a lot of our universities into professional development institutes, and that that's all you get, basically, all you get access to. So that elite view of, um, or elitist view of higher education is one in which... um, you know, the the children of very wealthy families will still get to go to university to have access to better schools and lower staff-student ratios. And the kids from middle and working-class families, it's going to be really tough. One of our members who's, you know, a working-class mum, single mum, send her kids to private schools in the hope of getting them through to uh, university is really... Thinking, why am I wasting my my money um, if they're going to have? And this isn't something that will happen tomorrow. But I think that the signs are very are getting much louder and clearer that that's what's uh, on the table. So um, I'll leave it at that. Jonathan, I'm sure has other things to add.
2: Um, not a lot. Of, thank you, Helen, and thanks, Sain, for your question. Um, I'd say only one thing more, which is, you're asking, has that discussion started? And the answer is as Helen said, that, in fact, it has been started and has been going on for quite a long time about, you know, should the universities actually be doing something differently? But that discussion is going to come from um, the activists, the members in the NTU, from other so- pro- progressive social movement activists and people in the community. That's where it's going to come from. Um, indeed, in the Im- immediate situation we are in, um, It is a kind of crisis scenario to some extent. Um, The capitalist forces, the the, the 1%, they are well organised in general and have have reserves in place. And they can respond to these sorts of situations very quickly. This is the kind of scenario that someone like Naomi Klein has outlined as shock doctrine. They're using... Disasters to actually push through their agendas, push through the changes they want to open up more and more space away from, uh, collective benefits from public goods to private, uh, private benefits from privately owned, um, economic resources, uh, including educational institutions. And that, that's the, that's the fundamental criteria we're dealing with here. And, um, that's, that's the, sorry, that's the scenario we're looking at, what they're trying to pursue. And of, we, and of course, as activists, we actually do need to respond to the situa- immediate situation. We do need to try and figure out what it is we can do to defend our working conditions, our pay, uh, the system as it exists. I mean, to actually find it, I mean, Helen didn't even mention, but in fact, um, her university management is pursuing major cuts at her university, uh, that was even before this. Uh, university of Tasmania amount announces in the middle of this they're planning to cut their courses by three quarters, which means a lot of the more specialised, a lot of more stuff which would take people to interesting places is what's been cut on the basis of they're not as profitable, basically, as the big courses, the big subjects with lots of students in them, uh, even though that doesn't take you sort of further down the, the realm of understanding the world and, and how to act in it um you know both scientifically and socially if you like and um and that is the general course of action that i think we're going to see from a um economic system capitalism is deeply in crisis and actually is in further crisis due to the very kinds of things that results from what it's doing climate change pandemics and so on and the incapacity to respond to those that's that's their problem we have to develop Develop our solutions, and we have to do, even while we have to respond to their attacks, and that's very difficult. And it actually means what we and our organisations, and we in the community, have to do is work out getting a lot more people involved, so we have a lot more resources to fight. And I think that's that's really one of the things that. Um, Quite a lot of us in the NTU are looking at least in to look immediately in terms of the situation we are facing, but trying to actually sort out how we can actually bring a lot more people into play and actually sort of recover our strength and mobilise that to actually turn this crisis into one that's for capitalism rather than the one they're using against us. Um, Megan wanted to ask a question.
3: Yeah. Um, thank you, Jonathan and Helen. This is some good analysis. I kind of wanted to touch on uh, Jonathan briefly mentioned before about the commodification of education and how we're moving away from um, what an education was was traditionally supposed to be. So, you know, even before uh, COVID-19, uh, you know, you mentioned Naomi Klein's shock doctrine tactics, which is what we seem to be having implemented at the moment. Um, But this has been happening for quite some time. You know, we see in history all over the world um a lot of uh, dissent, a lot of revolution origins, and a lot of criticism and questioning of government and um, corporate tactics comes from the university sector. So this is where a lot of uh, critical thinking and analysis about what's going on in the world comes from, and that's a really important thing. Obviously, as a society, um, if we look at the benefit of society as a whole, a well-educated population is a population that is more likely to question the status quo because they understand more about what's going on with the world. I'm wondering if you could maybe have a look, have a, ha- talk about the long-term tactics of, uh, you know, right-wing governments around the world to basically decimate universities and, you know, whether this has something to do with the fact that universities are often seen or often are the place of um, criticism of the tactics uh, of the corporations, of right-wing governments, etc., of neoliberal policies. I'm wondering if you could talk to, talk about that and how maybe the COVID-19 situation is simply just an opportunity to take advantage and actually implement things that they were already thinking of implementing or that were already being implemented.
2: Yeah, I think that is the case. I mean, we should not forget, of course, that, in fact, um, radical alternatives and ways of thinking about society actually spring from a lot of different areas. To some extent, what we today sort of particularly identify with, with that tradition in terms of uh, students and staff in um, higher education actually largely is generated out of the, that, you know, fantastic movement of revolutionaries on the campuses in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, before then, certainly there were many radicals, of course, in the universities, um, but it wasn't peculiarly, Did certainly didn't have that peculiar character as a source of radicalism, um, the working class as a whole had many other ways of sort of generating radical forces from within it. Um people would often come over and identify particularly with the institutions of the working class movement if they came from wealthier backgrounds or from educated backgrounds. Um, to some extent we added the arm of a progressive movement in the in the universities to that to a substantial extent during the sixties and seventies and on. It's been a struggle to maintain that since then. And certainly I think There's something that we haven't lost that struggle entirely. It has, there is still that element there. And I would say certainly that the forces, um, representing the current government don't like that. And they think particularly because it is a public, they're dealing with something that is still publicly owned institutions for the most part, that they can actually try and do something about that and try and squash it. Um, by, by yes, by cutting back these institutions back to elitist formations.
1: Yeah, I mean obviously uh I agree with the concerns. I think that the uh there are some really alarming possibilities coming that can arise out of all of this, but I also on a positive note have um great confidence in the ability of um you know community members as well as workers in the sector to to challenge this and contest it, as we've had to do as Jonathan was alluding to in the past. Um but I think that essentially there has been uh since the nineties in Australia and even before then really uh, the neoliberalisation of higher education. There's plenty of books and analyses of these out, this sort of forces out there. The sort of corporatisation and that higher education has essentially become like any other business. And um, so in a sense what that means for education and the contribution that universities uh, make to society is the priority of managers is over. Um, I, I was in a meeting with managers uh, recently and one of the senior sort of financial type people said, what we're interested in is that we, we may well be a not-for-profit uh, organisation, but we're also not for loss, was his words. And so what he basically was arguing uh, is that you need to courses, and the university as a whole, we cross-subsidise some courses that struggle, particularly things like medicine, et cetera. Uh, but that really there's a lot of pressure on academics and courses and subjects to be financially self-sustaining, have enough enrolments. So what that leads to is a context in which it's really about profitability or breaking even and, and how much money you can make out of a course through bums on seats in, with students in, at the end of the day. Uh, and that's far more important than investing in um, in cr- developing the capacity for critique, critical thinking, et cetera. And we know, of course, governments really don't like being criticised and universities have traditionally been one of those, not, not the only, but one of those institutions that produces, um, you know, a kind of body of people that can speak truth to power. Uh, and, of course, the powerful really hate that. Uh, so there is a, an ideological and a political dimension to all of this in trying to silence dissent and particularly inform dissent. And we, it's not just the social—I'm a sociologist—it's not just the social sciences. Um, people are many people are really frustrated about the ways in which governments ignore climate science, for example. Um, so we can have all the evidence and science and knowledge production in the world, but at the end of the day, it comes down to its political uh, manipulation, of, often. Um, or its political interpretation and usage. So, um, and in terms of those sort of broader forces, if we think about things like, um, you know, the Arab Spring and Occupy and those sorts of larger movements of social unrest, um, you know, one of the aspects of that, particularly in the Arab Spring, is you have these whole layers of highly educated young people with no employment opportunities. Um, and it's a bit of an historical, um, you know, a phenomenon that when you have layers of well-educated people with no opportunities, um, that that can be a real ingredient of social discontent. But on the other hand, if we're having the kind of dumbing down of society, which we often hear being talked about, and this, uh, you know, we're concerned this is just going to cont- contribute to that or or intensify that, then you have a whole bunch of people who are easily manipulated um by very powerful forces towards, you know, quite reactionary positions, which has happened prior to World War II and during the last Great Depression. So um, yeah, look, it's really concerning. But as Jonathan indicated, I'm I'm actually quite hopeful that it's also uh, an opportunity to marshal our forces. Um, I'm involved in organizing meetings and conversations almost daily with the rank and file, and they're dead keen to get involved. Uh, so the job and task for us in the union is uh, coordinating and organising those forces uh, and engaging, providing opportunities for the rest of the community who are concerned about these things to engage uh, in that defence of our education sector.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so the the next um, discussion um, I want to sort of start is about the question of the fight back. And basically I wanted to kind of start off um, that the NTU kind of national leadership has been criticised by sections of um, the rank and file for being, giving the indication that they were kind of already being kind of prepared to make concessions. And I guess I want to hear your perspectives on on your opinion on that, but also talking more broadly on what is the type of fight back and the type of solutions um, that um, NTU and members and university workers should be fighting for in this kind of period.
2: I think there's a few ways we need to think about this. The first kind of problem is that uh, we don't have working class power. Um, we need to organise and, and we need to actually persuade people and convince people and, and help people gain the confidence they can actually actually form that power and exercise it. And so when you don't have that power, then to simply... Pronounce that there will be no compromises is problematic because we make compromises all the time. Every industrial agreement we make is also an agreement that we haven't yet got rid of our employers, that we remain an exploited working class. That's just that's the that's a reality at that level. And of course, there are uh, many many comp compromises you make within that. We don't have as high as pay as we would like. We don't have all the conditions we would like. We even sometimes find we need we actually have to surrender something that we used to have. And this this is a problem and it's and it's a difficult scenario. But the question is do you make compromises that are necessary because in fact the one percent are very powerful. They have passed the laws, they have their state, they have their media and all the rest of it to use against us. And they do and therefore there may well be compromises we need to make and then there are unnecessary compromises, ones where we either fail to engage in struggle, well basically we fail to engage in struggle directly or indeed we struggled but then actually gave away things we did not need to give away and we've seen that happen too in the history of the union movement and the the social movement generally through history too unfortunately on occasions as well as brave struggles that have won far more than we expected to. So that's almost the general context for this. And I think that's something that everyone who is critical of um, our union leadership should be conscious of. Because, look, the thing is, I would actually say the union leadership in the NTU has a fair degree of support from quite a broad range of the membership. And the reason for that is most of the time and for quite a lot of the time, It's seen, the union's been seen as having our backs and they haven't actually achieved bad, um, enterprise agreements and they haven't failed to struggle to a considerable extent. What's happened in this scenario though is it's true that they made it, they made a decision that they would engage in negotiations with management. In fact, they prefer to engage with it at a national level. I actually think that's probably sensible to actually not allow them to have a situation where individual university managements maybe attack our weaker branches, win stuff off then, and then everyone else chases the, the, the things that we lose, the concessions that are made at, at individual universities down to a lowest common denominator. Would, it would probably indeed be better to have a national decision and actually be able to use the power of our stronger branches to hold up um, attacks elsewhere. Um, The problem is that, in a sense, it didn't look like we were going to fight at all. The initial communications that came out, in particular, and this certainly hasn't been, this has only been partly corrected up till now, failed to talk about campaigning much at all. And sorry, in fact, they emphasised the fact that we were going into discussions about concessions. Didn't talk about our campaigning didn't talk about the fact that there were already cuts taking place at some universities. That's very varied. In Queensland, as far as I know, as yet none of the casual staff have been told basically they have no further work. I haven't heard any reports of that. I mean, nor indeed have we had any sort of systematic reports of contract freezes or similar sorts of things, whereas that's happening quite relatively systematically, to be honest, in universities in Sydney and Melbourne in particular as far as I know. So obviously different staff are going through different experiences and sort of seeing things happening and asking why isn't our union standing up and saying, stop these cuts now, put everything on hold. We are actually agreeing, you have agreed, you the vice chancellors, you the management have agreed with us that you'll negotiate nationally and yet meanwhile you're putting pressure on, you're actually um, causing people to lose their jobs, lose their livelihoods. Um, typical example is about six hundred dollars a week for each of these casual staff that are losing their their jobs. And um, and they're being thrown onto the unemployment queues. Um, at this stage the universities themselves, even without the government providing additional funding, have substantial financial reserves for the most part. And probably those that are most impacted also the ones with very large financial reserves. So realistically they should be negotiating um, in good faith and not carrying out cuts already. On the other hand, we should be negotiating, yes, of course, but we should also be campaigning to try and shift the balance of forces in our favour. First and foremost, direct that against the, the key decision maker, which is the government, in this case, representing the system as a whole, and secondly, university managements to the extent that they're sort of trying to use and abuse this situation to gain their own immediate um, sort of Objects which are the kinds of objects which objectives which are related to pursuing that neoliberal agenda we were discussing before for universities of of commodification of the universities. So that's, that's really the scenario we've had in a sense justified criticism of um, the national executive and national officers. And then we've got the question of what to do next, which I think is where um, still, for activists, we are trying to fill that out. It's not, you know, in a sense we don't have the, we're not full-time officials, we don't have the time to think that out. Uh, we're starting to discuss that already and trying to make contributions. And obviously we need to at the branch level and nationally as well.
1: Yeah, look, I think the situation about the national debate and, and so forth is really, and the way that the national leadership has gone about this, uh, fundamentally reflects the, the lack of power in the trade union, or the diminished power, I should say, in the trade union movement broadly and in our own movement. So if we were, you know, we, as most people, I think, no union density or membership levels are very low <clears throat> at record lows at the moment, quite um, at crisis point in some places. And um, the higher education sector is is no exception. And I think that this is, is really what is shaping the response because, you know, essentially if we had a, a much higher membership levels and, uh, organized structures, delegate structures and so forth, that would have provided more immediate options for us as a, as a union. I mean, we are the union. It's not just the leadership, um, to be able to activate, but even in the context of self-isolation and the like. Uh, I think the thing, you know, there's a real fear, um, at, at certain levels of the, of the union, understandably, that in that context of being fit, comparatively disempowered for a whole range of, uh, external and internal reasons, um, that they're not be, that they didn't feel they were in a position to launch a campaign. I mean, beyond sort of social media type stuff. Um, and that even even in, in that context that we wouldn't have the, the kind of collective power to organize power to, uh, you know, elicit a proper funding package or, um, as I think, you know, we've argued in the socialist alliance that really what needs to be happening is an increase in, um, corporate tax rates and high income earning tax rates to pay for this rather than workers paying for it. So those sort of bigger picture solutions, which you know, anyone who has an understanding of the history of the Great Depression and other other sorts of economic downturns will know that's really the best path out of them rather than putting the burden on, on the working people. Um, and we know what happened with austerity packages, particularly throughout Europe and the US, uh, as a consequence. So I think it's really about the the position of power of the union. So um, I think, as Jonathan's indicated, I think that a lot of the concerns around concessions and the lack of campaigning, etc., are uh, you know within that context. So to me, what we really have is a crisis of power in the union. And this was actually acknowledged um, over 12 months ago. I mean, it's been acknowledged for a long time that the union movement's in you know in decline. And how do we reverse that? It's an international question, actually. Uh, and in our union, you know, I was really pleased when I came back into this sort of local leadership role that um, the union leadership had signalled. So um, uh, we've been in our branch really taking up that opportunity to essentially rebuild our delegate structures, our membership levels. Um, and as I stated, the local kind of interest is in how do we position ourselves better and do that really quickly. Uh, to be able to not only uh, certainly to campaign and mobilise but underpinning good campaigning and mobilisation is local level organisation. And that, I think, to my mind, is where our central attention should be, not fighting one another, although I totally understand the debate that's going on uh, and, and are sympathetic to it, but working you know, rather than fighting each other um, and we're expending too much time on that, and I think questions of union culture and democracy and process are really critical, but it's taking up most of the oxygen at the moment and distracting us um, from giving it, if not majority, attention to the job of building power in our ranks, and I think that's where our efforts really need to focus at the moment.
0: Yeah. Yes, thank you for um, for both that, um, Jonathan and Helen. Um, I guess we will wrap this up um, now, but do you have any kind of final comments you would like to kind of make? Um,
1: there's one thing I would like to um, add in the mix, and that's because I'm working as Jonathan, is in a regional university. I think it's, um, I just want to kind of put it out there that the implications of this kind of reactionary elitist view of higher education are particularly significant for regional communities and rural Australia, which has been decimated by neoliberalism in many respects um, for, for many years, decades now. This would be such a kick in the guts for regional Australia if they persist with this. The shutting of campuses or the selling off of campuses, for example, is just one aspect of it and, of course, job cuts. And that's because universities in regional Australia are kind of anchor institutions. They are key industries. Um, and so unlike the metropolitan areas where you've got a more diversified economy, more diverse job options, et cetera, and even education options, uh, you know, if they start shuttering universities in regional Australia, that is just going to send us back into the dark ages, economically and socially. So, uh, you know, I just uh, would like to bring to your listeners' attention that. This is going to have very disproportionate effects, not just on regional Australia, but we have higher proportions of working-class people in regional Australia, Indigenous people, women, people in you know poverty, etc. Health infrastructure and other public infrastructure are far uh, worse in regional Australia. So um, I just think that that's a really important part of, of the you know the scenario that looking ahead that we need to be on top of, and I think it's a great opportunity to to mobilise and organise and, organize and galvanise regional forces for a progressive agenda or a progressive fight back.
2: Yeah, and my comment would be this. That's absolutely true. And you can see that um, in our region, in northern Queensland, especially when the tourism industry, for example, in Cairns is so heavily impacted also by um uh, the, COVID, the response to COVID nineteen, which has been quite effective at that level in, term, in Australia, so I support it. But it actually has had does have significant impacts in an industry like that. Uh, the other thing I want the thing I wanted to add myself was um, I said I said I think it's important that we actually engage with negotiations. Our members will wonder why we aren't looking at all the different options potentially to try to keep jobs going. And that, they'll expect that and it's re- and that's, that's okay. That's their immediate interests and, and that's important that we actually can try and associate, um, relate those immediate interests and longer term concerns for where the, um, universities, the higher education sector go. Um, but there are, of course, difficulties in doing that process. Um, you can't expect management to come up with the kind of solutions you want. In fact, I think what we're seeing here is that the measures that the vice chancellors have come forward with as opposed to the unions in the negotiations about how to try to um, keep the money together to keep people in jobs and keep them employed and keep them working at this time. The vice chancellors and management's um, positions oh in fact, their propositions are nearly all regressive. They're all things will impact most on the lower paid workers in the university sector. And there's a, there was a even though many of our uh, members, many of the workers in universities are, in fact, very highly educated, uh, well above, obviously, well above average for the um, population as a whole. Our pay levels are not um, huge for, the, for in many cases, certainly among the ministry of workers. There's many, many workers that typically are at or below average wages, um, many part-time workers and so on. Um, they will suffer significantly from... Uh, pay freezes or cuts to fractional time more fractional times in their work and so on Um, and also the different kinds of things there are sorts of provisions which in some ways are very sort of historical provisions which which sort of provide some sort of career progression for our different kinds of career progression and some improvement in pay for our stuff and again those are things that have been discussed as things that Managements find very easy to feel oh we can just stop those. But actually they matter quite a lot to the lower paid staff. So um and the staff with more insecure work. So there's a kind of a intersection, not a complete and absolute, but a definite intersection between those two elements. So actually we need to find a way to break through that and force things into a different framework of discussion. So that's partly what discussions like this are and discussions. Uh, we 're helping to hold in the Union, and I think the discussions will happen among um, the rank and file activists both officially and we do, there are more meetings taking place now, there is an opening up of a democratic discussion union, it's, it's starting, it's not fully there yet, but it's starting and I think that's very important, it does speak to our union somewhat and what we've been able to, to achieve in the past there, that there's a, there is a tradition that pushes in that direction, so and that that's down to more less, that is down more to all the different elements in the union to to some extent. Um, I think that has to be said. So that's that's the scenario and that's what we're going to work in and we're going to keep, keep fighting to actually see um, good change come out of this whole situation. So I guess I should just thank everyone here who's allowed us to have a bit of a chat. Jacob, uh, Megan, and saying thank you very much.
0: I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au.